1: Privyet and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 31, The End of the Rurikids. Thanks for listening in. Well, it's been quite a while, so let's just have a quick refresh. Last time out, we finished up in the year 1571, most of Moscow was a burnt out ruin for the second time in 25 years. The Ottomans and their allies had raided the suburbs and were hot-footing it south with their captured slaves. The Livonian War was effectively gridlocked. Trade was still disrupted because of the Swedish-Danish-Hanseatic blockade. The boyar class had been decimated by purges and executions. And Russia was recovering from a serious famine. And presiding over this unholy mess was the volatile, ruthless, autocratic, paranoid and quite possibly deranged 41-year-old Ivan the Terrible. However, on the plus side, well, depending on your viewpoint, the private state within a state, the Oprichnina, was on its last knockings. The Tsar had managed to hold on to his initial territorial acquisitions, Kazan and Astrakhan. The eastern borderlands had been more or less pacified, Siberia was slowly being opened up and colonised, oh, and Ivan had a new wife. Well, actually, between the death of his first wife in 1560 and the year 1572, the Tsar had managed to get married a further three times, and was currently on wife number four, more of which later. Anyway, if I was giving the Tsar his report card, I'd give the pre-1560 Ivan a B B+. But after that, well, I'm afraid at the moment it's looking like a D-, although I'm not sure I would be saying that to his face. So this week, in a longer-than-usual episode, we'll look at the rest of Ivan's time as Tsar, and, as intimated previously, it doesn't go well. We'll summarise his achievements, failures and legacy. and we'll see what another Russian leader, a certain Joseph Stalin, thought of him. And then we'll finish off by covering the comparatively short reign of the last Rurikid Tsar, Ivan's son, Feodor I. Yep, yeah, that's right. After more than seven centuries of being in charge of various political entities, the Rurikid dynasty will come to an end. And just so you know, the pause that follows this is there to create just a frisson of dramatic tension. There. I hope that you are all now suitably tense. I know I am. Before we crack on though, I'm going to break the tension that I've just painstakingly created by covering a very brief piece of self-promotion, well sort of self-promotion. So up to now, the platform where most podcast listeners could leave a rating and or a more detailed review was Apple Podcasts. Well, it's my understanding that Spotify have now joined the party for ratings only, not reviews, via their phone app. And so now Spotify listeners to this podcast or anyone with a Spotify account that listens on a different platform can leave a rating. Preferably a five-star rating, you know... Just saying. Okay, with that out of the way, let's do some history of Russia. And we'll start by looking at what Ivan had been up to on the marital front since the death of wife number one, Anastasia Romanovna. So in August 1560, incidentally the same month that Anastasia had died, And once he'd surprisingly and suspiciously quickly gotten over his breakdown, the Tsar decided to marry for a second time. And the lucky woman this time was the 16-year-old Circassian princess, Maria Temryukovna. And just so you know, Circassia was an historical region in the North Caucasus. Maria lasted nine years, and by all accounts she was as nasty and as vindictive as her husband was purported to have been. However, she died in 1569, with some saying that she had been poisoned by the Tsar. Ivan then took a two-year break before marrying wife number three, Martha Sobakina, in October 1571. But 16 days later, she was also dead, possibly again it was rumoured, from poison. Now, to get married a fourth time would have presented Ivan with a couple of problems. One minor, as it would turn out, and one major. So the minor one first, finding a woman who would want to marry the Tsar after his recent track record. Although, come to think of it, I guess there would have been any number of ambitious boyars and courtiers in Russia keen or stupid enough to get one of their female relatives married off to the head of state. And the major problem. The Orthodox Church didn't allow a fourth marriage. Permission for third marriages was extremely difficult to obtain, but fourth marriages? No. Not happening. End of story. Ivan's view, though, was that as he hadn't consummated the last marriage, then that took things back to square one, or in this case square three, and he put this argument forward to the clergy, but only after he had already secretly married wife number four, Anna Colt of thereby presenting the church with a fate accompli which they felt that they had no choice but to reluctantly go along with. However, there were some conditions attached, albeit not very onerous ones. Ivan could not attend church services for a year, and during that time he had to spend time with penitents and common Christians, serving what was in effect a kind of 16th century community service order. In retrospect, though, this whole event proved to be a pointless charade because the marriage only lasted two years, as Anna was suspected of being infertile, and so Ivan had her conveniently packed off to a convent, where, coincidentally, she lived, probably quite happy and relieved, until 1626. So if we sum up the marital situation as it was in the mid-1570s, yep, there would be more by using the rhyme related to Henry VIII's wives. So instead of getting divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, we get possibly poisoned, possibly poisoned, possibly poisoned, survived, which doesn't quite have the same ring about it, but is, I guess, a handy reminder. Ivan would go on to marry on four further occasions, but there's scant evidence that any of these further unions were actual marriages and none of them had the blessing of the church. And just to finish off this section, there had been numerous children born from the first two marriages, seven in total, but five children had died young, and the only two who had survived into adulthood were Ivan Jr., more of whom soon, and Feodor. Oh, I nearly forgot, there would be one other son, Dmitri, from Ivan's last marriage, in inverted commas, who indirectly would go on to be the cause of much intrigue at the start of the next century. But I'm getting ahead of myself here, so let's get back on course. And the year 1575, where we find Ivan on a kind of sabbatical or gap year. Remember from the last episode that when things had really gotten to the Tsar after the death of Anastasia, and the defection of Andrei Kurbski to the Lithuanians in 1564, he had decided to leave Moscow and then abdicate, only to return not long after and restart the purges. Well, he did it again, but this time his abdication lasted a whole year, and during that time a new ruler, one of Ivan's advisers, a certain Simeon Bekbulatovich, was set up in the Kremlin to run things as Grand Prince. Whilst Ivan stayed in the shadows, we don't know exactly where, and styled himself mysteriously and slightly ominously as Ivan of Moscow, as if anyone was fooled by that. Now, historians have a number of opinions regarding why Ivan did this, but the most popular theory is that he wanted to confiscate land that belonged to monasteries without being seen to be doing it himself. And so the newly retired Tsar, or Tsar Emeritus, got Simeon to issue the decrees of confiscation, while he pretended to disagree with the whole thing, and then when he slipped back to being the actual Tsar again in 1576, he returned some of the confiscated land and kept the rest. Now all of this sounds a bit contrived and convoluted, and there is another theory for which there is some evidence that the whole thing was just an excuse to start another round of purges. Anyway, For Ivan to have even contemplated taking a year out, things must have been fairly quiet, but unfortunately they wouldn't remain that way for much longer, as the situation on the stagnant Livonian front was going to get, well, less stagnant and much more volatile. In 1576, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth elected Stefan Batory, a Hungarian noble, as their new king-grand-duke. stroke Well, actually, they elected Anna Yagielon, who was the sister of the last ruler, to be king, but on the proviso that she married Stefan and then he sort of became the king by default. And to cut a very long story short, Stefan soon found himself under pressure on the home front, and so he needed to find something that would cement his position and impress nobles and subjects alike. So. Lay siege to the only city in the Commonwealth that was still disputing his election at Danzig in Prussia. Tick. Get the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian II, off his back. Tick. Get the finances in order and reorganise the judiciary. Tick. Form a key military alliance and sort out the situation in Livonia. And so in 1577, whilst Ivan was getting his feet back under the table in Moscow and leafing through his in-tray, Stefan was negotiating an an alliance with Sweden and putting together a joint invasion plan. In 1578, the fighting started in earnest, with Sweden from the north and the Commonwealth from the west both winning a series of victories that saw the Russian army start to give ground and then fall into a full retreat. At the beginning of 1579, Commonwealth forces had made it into Russian territory, taking Polotsk and Veliki-Luki, and then in 1581, a second campaign saw the city of Peskov come under siege. So Ivan, realising at this stage that any further involvement in the Livonian venture was probably doomed to failure, quickly, and sanely came to the negotiating table, and in 1582 signed a peace deal with the Commonwealth, and in 1583 agreed a treaty with the Swedes, both of which saw Russia lose all of its previous territorial gains. But against this backdrop of defeat and failure in Livonia, Ivan sought to re energize the settlement and colonization of Siberia, which, under the stewardship of the Stroganovs, had gone okay but wasn't quite cutting the mustard in terms of land acquired and goods traded. And, just as an aside, and talking of mustard, I'd like to say that my attempt at cooking a beef stroganoff was a triumph, but in all honesty, whilst it was okay, it, it needs refining. A little less Dijon mustard, I think, and the creme fraiche needs to be replaced, perhaps with a dash of double cream. Not sure that the stroganoffs would approve, but each to his own. Meanwhile, back in Siberia, at some point in the early 1580s, Ivan sent a Cossack headman, Yermak Timofeyevich, and a few hundred of his followers to go and sort out the Khanate of Sibir. By 1582, Yermak and his soldiers had made it to the main settlement of Kashlik, near the modern day city of Tobolsk, which they were able to capture, but the Khan, Kuchum, managed to slip away into the vast West Siberian forest. Yermak then sent a message back to the Tsar proclaiming that Siberia had been conquered, much to the annoyance of the Stroganovs who'd been labouring away for years without any recognition. Kuchin wanted reinforcements to be sent and Ivan agreed to send them. However, these reinforcements never arrived. They actually died of starvation en route and then two years later Kutchin caught up with Euromek and killed him in an ambush. So another botched job. Probably, although you could argue that none of this was Ivan's fault, and anyway, a few years later, a much larger Russian force would go on to defeat and conquer the entire Carnate. so all would end well. Something that probably was Ivan's fault, though, was an incident in 1581 that, if true, and I stress if true, seem to have summed up, summed up or encapsulate everything that was wrong with the Tsar, and which has gone down in history as one of his most infamous acts. Hey,
0: it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,
1: Now, there are various different sources and therefore versions of this story, but there seems to be consensus around the main elements, even though I doubt that any one person either saw or knew the whole picture. So, Ivan's daughter-in-law, his son Ivan Jr's wife, Yelena, who was pregnant, was resting on a bench near her rooms in the palace one day, and, this is key, wasn't wearing formal courtly attire and, in fact, was probably in her underwear. Around the corner came Ivan the Terrible, and on seeing Yelena so immodestly dressed, he threw a fit and started to physically attack her, and so serious was the beating that, a few hours later, Yelena suffered a miscarriage. When young Ivan found out what had happened, he went to see his father to tell him exactly what he thought of his actions, which perhaps in hindsight wasn't such a wise move because ivan the terrible picked up his heavy iron-tipped staff and smashed his son over the head with it young ivan fell to the floor and realizing what he had done ivan the terrible cradled his son's head in his arms and started yelling for help and just as a side note that final scene imagined of course was captured by the Russian realist artist Ilya Repin at some point between 1883 and 1885. It's one of Russia's most famous paintings and today can be seen in the Tretiakov Gallery in Moscow. Ivan's shouting and wailing was all to no avail though because at some point over the next five days, young Ivan, the heir to the Russian throne, died of his wounds, leaving his younger brother, the quiet pious and some say simple-minded Feodor as Ivan the Terrible's only remaining legitimate son and therefore his new successor. And Feodor wouldn't have long to wait. In March 1584, the Tsar was enjoying a game of chess with his friend Bogdan Belski when he suddenly collapsed to the floor and died, most probably from a stroke. And so in an instant, the long 51-year reign of one of the most infamous Russian leaders in history was over. So how do we pick the bones out of all of that? Well, let's go through the pluses and minuses of Ivan's time in charge whilst trying to maintain an objective view and keeping in mind that, to a certain extent, his legacy and reputation effectively prejudge the situation. So with that said let's start with the positives well i guess the big positive is the territorial expansion of russia eastwards to kazan astrakhan and parts of siberia and then we have the establishment of effective control and administration of the russian state and the attempts to establish russia as part of the european family via an outlet on the baltic plus the trade deal with the muscovy company and a couple of things that i didn't mention in the narrative the establishment of Russia's first print works back in 1553, and attempts by the Tsar to enhance the trading relationship with England, and perhaps things on a more personal level, via letters that went backwards and forwards between Ivan and Queen Elizabeth I of England. And the thing to note here is that nearly all of those events happened before the death of Anastasia in 1560. After 1560, however, It's a different story. The paranoia, the purges of the boyars and the clergy, the oprichnina and the Novgorod massacre, the endless and in the end pointless Livonian war, the famine, those bizarre abdications, and the murder of his son and heir, or the alleged murder of his son and heir. And so, after a promising beginning where it looked and felt like Ivan was continuing the state-building policies of his grandfather, Ivan the Great, and his father, Vasily III, in the end, Russia was left as an effective dictatorship that was bankrupted by war, had no allies or major trading partners, and seemed to be stagnating or retrogressing, whilst most of the rest of Europe was starting or trying to embrace a more enlightened age. And I think it's that bleak picture that would set the blueprint for the way in which Russia would develop, govern itself, and treat the vast majority of its poor. Because during Ivan's reign, we also see the foundations of that peculiar Russian institution, serfdom, being set in place. And that's something else I'll be taking a more in-depth look at in the near future. One thing that struck me during my research on Ivan were the comparisons with another intriguing Russian leader, uh, Joseph Stalin. Both Ivan and Stalin had troubled childhoods. Stalin's father was an often absent drunk who beat his son. And, And those childhoods must have affected their mindsets and their inability to trust anyone or anything. But the really freaky thing is that both men also had what can be seen in hindsight as very similar life-changing events. Ivan with the death of his first wife, and Stalin with the death of his second wife, Nadezhda, who committed suicide by shooting herself in 1932. And coincidentally, and this is even more bizarre, Adolf Hitler's half-niece, Geli Raubel, who was allegedly having an affair with her uncle Adolf, shot herself in 1931. A number of historians now agree that after 1932, Stalin was a changed man, who became increasingly dictatorial and paranoid, and this behaviour led to the great purges of the late 1930s, the set-up of the gulags, and complete distrust of anyone who said that Hitler was going to attack Russia in 1941, even after Operation Barbarossa had started. In fact, so shocked was Stalin at the Nazi invasion of Russia that he hid away in his dacha outside of Moscow for a few days, half expecting the Politburo to come and arrest him, as he knew that he'd made such a massive blunder. But the Politburo, fearing that their loyalty was being tested, and who were terrified to a man of making a wrong move, just like Ivan's boyars when he had pretended to abdicate, instead begged Stalin to come back, which the relieved dictator, of course, did. And Stalin's views on Ivan make interesting reading. During the Second World War, Stalin oversaw a couple of projects. One, a stage play by Alexei Tolstoy, who was a distant relative to the writer Leo Tolstoy, and the other, a three-part film by the renowned director Sergei Eisenstein both of which covered the life of Ivan the Terrible. Stalin read the scripts, and whilst he was satisfied with part one of Eisenstein's film, it took Tolstoy another year to come up with a version that the dictator approved of. Part two of Eisenstein's film, though, The Boyars' Revolt, angered Stalin, who said, and I quote, now I'm going to have to do a really special quotation voice for Stalin, Ivan the Terrible was very cruel, you can show that he was cruel, but you have to show why it was essential to be cruel. One of Ivan the Terrible's mistakes was that he didn't finish off the major Boyar families. And what about the views of the present Russian leader? Well, Vladimir Putin said of Ivan the Terrible that it is unknown whether he killed his son or not. he's probably got a point, as no one really knows the whole truth. And that it's wrong to portray Ivan as extraordinary, when exactly the same kind of things were happening in other countries. Not sure about that. And incidentally, Putin said of Stalin, Stalin was a product of his times. It seems to me that excessive demonization of Stalin is one of the means, one of the lines of attack on the Soviet Union and Russia, in order to show that today's Russia bears some birthmarks of Stalin. So what? We all bear some birthmarks of some kind or another. Views which perhaps reflect why the current situation in Russia is getting just a little bit heated. I don't think there's much more that can really be said about Ivan that I haven't mentioned already. But just for the record, he was, in my view, an evil, cruel, despotic tyrant who squandered his early successes, put his own needs ahead of those of the state, and laid the foundations for the end of the Rurikid dynasty. However, as we've heard, and in the interest of balance, there are different views, with some historians and revisionists believing that Ivan strengthened Russia, put it on the world map, attempted to gravitate the state towards Europe, and handled the Boyar situation more effectively than either his father or grandfather had. And I suppose, rather than labelling Ivan as cruel or paranoid, we should perhaps recognise that he just did the best that he could whilst operating under the constraints of a seriously troubled mind. One thing is for certain, though. The death of his son and heir, young Ivan, by whatever means, and who, by all accounts, was stable, intelligent and popular, resulted in the Tsar's middle son, Feodor becoming the next ruler of Russia. And Feodor had problems of his own. Aged 27, when he was crowned as Tsar of all the Rus in May 1584, Feodor, like his father before him, had experienced a troubled childhood. He was three when his mother had died, and his formative years coincided with his father's darkest period in the 1560s and early 1570s. And Feodor's reaction was to withdraw into his own lonely world. He had a simple mindset, never enjoyed the best of health, but became deeply pious and was at his happiest in church, where, by all accounts, he spent hours in prayer and contemplation and loved listening to the bells being rung. So much so that he is known today as either Feodor the Blessed or Feodor the Bellringer. In 1580, Fyodor got married to Alexandra Fyodorovna Gud- Gudunova, who was the sister of one of his father's ministers, a certain Boris Gudunov. Now, although the marriage was arranged by the Tsar and the couple knew absolutely nothing about each other before the actual event, they grew close and went on to have a really strong marriage. However, there was a problem in that for 12 years, It was a childless marriage, and, unfortunately for the dynasty, when a child was born in 1592, it was a daughter. And then, even more unfortunately, she died two years later, and that was it. No other children were born, meaning that Feodor was to be the last Rurikid Tsar. Now, we don't know a lot about Feodor's time in charge, but two things are worth noting. Due to his nature, and probably because he wasn't that interested, the new Tsar only ruled Russia nominally. The real power was in the hands of Boris Gudunov, who acted as a kind of regent. And then secondly, and unlike his father, Feodor, although it was probably Boris, having no enthusiasm for maintaining the exclusive trading rights with the English Muscovy Company, dismissed the English ambassador, Sir Jerome Bowes, and declared that Russia was now open for business for all countries. Now, Queen Elizabeth's first reaction was to send a new envoy, Giles Fletcher, to demand that Boris Gudinov get the Tsar to reconsider. But these negotiations failed, apparently, because when Fletcher addressed Feodor, he failed to use all of the Tsar's titles. Undeterred, Elizabeth continued to write to Feodor, and even proposed a formal alliance between Russia and England, something which she would refused to do when Ivan had suggested it. But neither the Tsar or his regent were persuaded by these overtures. Feodor died in 1598, aged 40, and as there were no other brothers or uncles to step into his shoes, Irina, his wife, stepped into the breach and ruled for nine days before passing full control over to her brother Boris, or, to put it another way, before she was persuaded by Boris to hand over full control to Boris. And so 736 years after Rurik had been invited in to run things, the party, or work meeting, as we call parties these days in the UK, there's a bit of politics there, was over for the dynasty, and Russia was about to go through one of its grimmest and darkest periods The Time of Troubles. Okay, I think that's enough for this week. Next time, we'll be taking a bit of a break from the main narrative, and we'll be covering instead an historical overview of the Ottoman Empire, which since the fall of Constantinople in 1453 had been doing okay for itself, well, more than okay for itself, and which would in the future become a major pain in Russia's backside. So until then, and as always, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.